and welcome back to the Great Women Artists podcast. Last week we interviewed Dr. Sunal Kular on Amrita Sheergill, and this week we chat to the critic Jerry Saltz on the likes of Gillian Waring, Tracy Emin, Kara Walker, and more. But before we get to this, I am delighted to say that this episode is generously supported by Christie's Auction House, who are inviting you to see history in a new light with their auction series, Classic Week, celebrating art from antiquity to the 20th century. Through the 15th of December, Christie's London will present seven live and online auctions with lots spanning from Roman marbles, ancient engraved gems, rare books and manuscripts. This season's highlights feature Sir Anthony Van Dyke's engaging portrait of Queen Henrietta Maria, wife of King Charles I of England, to be offered during the Old Master Evening Sale on the 8th of December. While much has been made of Charles as a great collector and patron, it is only more recently that Henrietta Maria has been recognised as such in her own right. In many ways, she can in fact be said to have been a more independent-minded champion of the arts than her husband, with a broad interest that encompassed theatre, music and literature, as well as contemporary visual arts. She regularly took part in court masks and was responsible for two of the most important decorative schemes of the day, the new chapel at Somerset House, then Denmark House, and the completion of the Queen's House in Greenwich. As usual, with all Christie's exhibitions, you can view all this and more in person at their headquarters in London, with free entry from the 2nd of December onwards. Visit christies.com for more information on Christie's Classic Week auctions, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Hello everyone, and welcome to The Great Women Artists Podcast, with me, Katie Hessel. Some of you might know me from The Great Women Artists, an Instagram account I set up in October 2015, which celebrates female artists on a daily basis, ranging from young graduates to old masters. Well, in a similar fashion to the Instagram, this podcast is all about celebrating female artists from a variety of backgrounds and histories. And I'm so excited to be interviewing artists on their career or artists, writers, curators, or general art lovers on the woman artist who means most to them. What I want this podcast to do is celebrate female artists in all different capacities so you, the listener, can gain a look into the greatest female artists working now or from art history. I am so excited to say that my guest on the Great Women Artists podcast is one of the most well-known and prominent art critics of the 21st century, Jerry Saltz. Since the 1990s, Saltz has been an indispensable cultural voice and has attracted an enormous following of contemporary readers. Only beginning to write at around 40 years old, when he was still a long-haul truck driver, Saltz is now the senior art critic for New York Magazine and its entertainment site Vulture. In 2018, he won the Pulitzer Prize for Criticism and had twice been nominated when he was the art critic for The Village Voice between 1998 and 2007. He has spoken at the likes of MoMA, the Guggenheim, as well as Harvard, Yale, Columbia and RISD, and is the best-selling author of How to Be an Artist, published in 2020, which provides invaluable insight into what is really important for up-and-coming artists, from originality to persistence and self-belief. 
But one of the reasons we are talking to Jerry today is because he has just published his book, Art is Life, Icons and Iconoclasts, Visionaries and Vigilance and Flashes of Hope in the Night, which is a collection of his writings from 1999 to 2021 and surveys the ups and downs of the time between 9-11 and the pandemic through the lens of visionary artists shaping how we see art today. Jerry Saltz, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today? Huge honor to be here, Katie. I love listening to your podcast because already I'm caught up in your energy and trying to equal it. So I'm well, I'm in New York. Anything on this earth is better than writing. So I'm kind of in a state of bliss. Wonderful. We could have an hour where we do not even think about writing. (laughs) But Jerry, it's such an honor to have you on the podcast, really, because I have grown up and being shaped by your criticism. And I know that I speak for many people, but you really have given so many of us permission to have a crack at art writing, to take it on. And I discovered you when I was a teenager and all me and my friends, you know, we used to follow you on Twitter and Facebook and it was so exciting. I think we were just so energized by what you had to say about art. But today we are speaking to you obviously in 2022 and this is a transformational era. And in the book, you argue for a new assessment of a generation of artwork produced amid, in your words, a continual state of emergency. What can art and art criticism give us in a time like today? First of all, it can give us who we really are. The job number one of critics and artists, Katie, is to be able to embed thought in material. All of us in the United States, certainly from the contested election of Bush versus Gore to 9-11 to the Bush-Cheney war machine to the long American night maybe ending around the election of Obama and the arc of history moving towards justice to the re-onset of the long American night and the Trump years to the contested election of 220, to the double pandemic, which we'll get into, all art has been made under, like you say, a condition of emergency. That means even if you're an artist who only makes still lifes or landscapes, the deep content of now is embedded in your work. You do not have to fret if you're political or relevant enough. I would say, in fact, the most obvious work is the least relevant. So I would say that art can change the world only insofar as art embeds itself in other people and other people can then change the world. So I have a great faith in it. You have to understand before I finish this, I'm a geezer. I'm 71 years old. I'm from a former world. I'm a true believer. I actually believe that art occupies a sacred space, that art has been with us since the beginning. It has never not been with us. It seems to use us to reproduce itself. All of us in our work, Katie, you, me, everyone, we often think, where did that come from? It's like a ghost chooses you to make the work if you can just get out of your goddamn way. And frankly, anybody listening to this, get to work, you big babies. Surely (laughs) you can make work at least as mediocre as my work. 
okay? I don't claim to be a great writer. I'm just writing as hard as I can for the reader, trying to share my own radical vulnerability with anybody that might read me. If I can be this mediocre and dance naked in public and be torn (laughs) new ones every day, just this morning, I wrote the word thoughts with a question mark on the Vienna climate protest where they threw a bucket of tar or oil on a Gustav Klimt. All I did was write the word thoughts and hyperallergic came on and called me a courtier. So the fuck I know, all I'm trying to do is put it out there. If I can be this mediocre in public, you can. So you can stop listening to the podcast now. <laughs> Get to work, goddammit. So I don't know what I've answered and which question you asked, but I have a lot of faith in art, and I also know it's completely useless in another way. <laughs> So go on. I'm yammering because I'm alone all the time. (laughs) Critics never get a chance to talk to anybody. But you're also with art. You're never alone when you've got art. And I have so many thoughts on what you said. First of all, is the fact that, you know, why do we all come to this thing? I don't have like an art family or anything. I just fell in love with this thing as a kid. And I almost can't really describe why I'm so obsessed with it. It's such a bizarre thing. But I, it's like this urgent desire and need that I need to have in my life. But also, you know, you saying, okay, something's happened in the world. We say thoughts, right? And that is so powerful because it's like one of my favorite works ever is Gillian Waring signs. And mm. what she did, she just went round London in 1992 after the recession and just asked people to say immediately what they thought on a piece of paper. And that's what I do when I'm in exhibitions as well. I get my notes up on my phone. I just write random words about what I just think in that exact moment when I look at this painting or whatever. But Jerry, like you have also given us permission to do that. And it's about actually finding your own voice in all of this. Well, for sure, Katie, I love that you say that. I want to do, go back to Gillian Waring in a second, but I will say that as someone, and I've, I, I don't mean to harp on this, but I want people that are as big as losers as I am to understand <laughs> this. I didn't go to school. I I'm a huge loser. I have no degrees. I self-exiled because demons spoke to me. The same things that they said to you at 315, they said to me, you don't know what you're doing. Your ankles are no good. You don't know how to schmooze. You don't have enough money. Oh my God, look at how that one gets all the attention and nobody talks to you. I gave in. And for 10 years, I was a long-distance truck driver. I drove from New York to Florida or New York to Texas, sometimes California, once a month in a rage, hating the world, thinking everybody owed me a living, looking at everybody else. I think I might have been the only Jewish long-distance truck driver. My CB handle was the Jewish cowboy. When I finally taught myself to write, Katie, in the trucks, I would read Art Form, which is basically still the super expensive, ultra-glossy insider's school newspaper for the art world. And so my first reviews more or less sounded like theirs. I would write 
the late commodified object of post-Marxist <laughs> capitalism finds itself suspended in a simulacra in a haptic but not liminal space that interrogates nature and culture. And I was thinking, Jesus, the fuck am I saying? <laughs> then one day, Katie, and I want all of you to hear this, deadlines, artists, and writers are sent to you from heaven via hell. There's no way I would write if I didn't have to make a living. I'm sorry. I, I shouldn't admit that. But one day, because I procrastinated as much as you do, I had to turn something in. I've never missed a deadline of that. I'm very proud. And that's going to be on my tombstone dead. It'll say he never missed a deadline. But out of nowhere, by necessity, the demons said to me, you have no more goddamn time, you jerk. You're going to have to write what you really think and the way you really speak. And in one review, not a good review, I wrote what I didn't like about a work of art, because all art criticism by today is positive, and it drives me up a wall, because not every single game leads plays is a great game. So you wouldn't say that. I wrote what I didn't like, and I wrote the way I speak. I wanted to write a criticism of permission. I don't want to be a high priest of this or that taste. I never think a critic should be so wed to an idea. I change my mind just like all of you do. I might love something and then not love it the way you do your clothes. I'm fat. No, I'm not. I look great. All of that I want to share with the reader. However, Jillian Waring... What an incredible, simple work of art. Just like reggae, something so simple that no one had ever thought of it before by changing the beat of rock to the opposite, instead of two and four to one and three. That's simple. And you change the world with that. She, instead of talking to herself like you and I, Katie, making notes on our idiot iPhones, she turned to the person next to her and said, what are you thinking? And that's what I want to do in my criticism. I want to do it every day. I want to ask other people in real time on my idiot Instagram and Twitter. That's me speaking to a million people. I don't consider myself better for that, but I feel like I get to be Jillian Waring of art criticism where I often, Katie, in a museum, but I will turn to the person next to me and go, what are you thinking about that? What do you think of that flayed skin of Marcius? And it blows my mind every time what other people are thinking. So I'm interested in the Greek chorus of voices that sees what the characters can't see, that try to sing it out loud. I'm interested in a community because we are that. Losers, pirates, visionaries, needy people like me, all of us on this sort of ship of the beautifully damned. So... I don't know how I got to this, but Jillian Waring piece, how can you not like that at least, for God's sake? It's like reggae.
Totally. And also, I think these artworks, you know, they make you feel seen. And also, when you do ask people's opinion, I always think, I want to hear your take. I don't even care about the academic context or anything. I just want to know how you feel in front of it. And so with Gillian Waring's, it's exactly that. How do you feel when you are in this moment right here, right now? Like there's this amazing picture of this guy in a suit who holds up a sign saying, I'm desperate, or the policeman who holds up a sign saying, help. It's subverting these roles in society essentially but also even though it's made 30 years ago it still speaks so pertinently to the world that we live in now and i think that's the power of great art as well it's so smart just think of masaccio had included a few speech bubbles over his head or something like that i think that the british artists are especially great at annexing other British people. That is the strongest suit of a lot of British art and, of course, the weakest suit because England is the capital of England to the English. I think that the English are amazing at trying to reach a public audience, to grab people by the lapels, to shake them up, to go through the criticism I don't know if that criticism is there anymore, certainly in the United States, as I say. And online, everybody likes everything, and I think that that sells everybody short. I think what the British are good at, maybe, and bad at, like you say, the weaknesses, are also telling the truth. And so when someone actually does it, everyone just completely feels seen. Totally. Great Britain is about the size of New York State. And it has this insane history. We are now at an end of empire phase in my country. The British, of course, in this teeny little area where everyone loves and hates each other, and you can talk in such circles, and Americans listen to you, and we give you all our museum jobs, all of our Academy Awards, and when we come there, you give us fuck nothing. That you always turn away when we turn away and go, oh, God, they only wanted to talk about money. Fuck off. I'm giving you a space of my podcast and I'm okay. British. Yeah, finally. <laughs> um, British art has always been great with a kind of theater and realism. It turns out Tracy Eamon, who was completely misunderstood in my country, I saw her first piece shown in New York at the Gramercy Park Hotel, this incredible artist under a blanket with all the people she slept with, and that never meant sex. It meant sex and love and friends and nurturing and enemies. But after that old thing called YBA came along and it was just shock, 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 America completely turned off to her me included. And sometime about 12 or 13 years ago, I started looking at her paintings and I thought she may be the greatest painter alive. I thought I was seeing into the secret life, the inner life of the female psyche in ways that I've seen only in like Alice and Neil. I was in shock about how open that work was. It's still is mind-boggling to me. She may be the greatest artist alive today. You're not wrong. You're not wrong. Ooh, I love but- <laughs> hearing that. No one in America knows this. She has barely any profile here. I just interviewed her. Crowds were wild for her. It yeah, was of like a, a caged animal was on the stage that I accidentally let out, and it was phenomenal. Amazing, amazing. But in the 
book, you talk about how every work of art tells a story. And I wanted to know, what is the earliest known work by a woman that we know? My personal theory, first, let's just start with the obvious. Look at the Venus of Willendorf. That's the first, quote, known sculpture that we have. I think it's 40,000 years old. First of all, if you look very carefully at it, it's a woman with great breasts and enormous hips and a tiny head and little feet, as if you might be able to stick it in the sand or next to your pillow or carry it in the pouch. It's small. It's meant to be touched, carried about. But let's go back further, 50,000 years 51%, which is always the steady percent of the female population, 51% of the hands that we found in caves are women's hands. Everybody was in these caves. We know that women's hands account for half of that, that men, women, and children were in there. The, the third most common thing in caves are penises and vulvas, the same thing we all did as kids, like to look up the naughty words, and you kids got to look at naughty pictures. So back to women. The first great women artists were obviously cave painters. Of course, you were part of the same people that had observed mammals for 100,000 years. Those paintings are by men and women. And we also know this because one painter paints over another painter's painting, like, fuck off. I can do this mammal better than you. So this argument about women artists, it's been apartheid for 50,000 years. We all know this. Is it still apartheid? Yes, but much, much less so. And we're hearing the other half of the story. Just think, how I would have been different had I been able to listen to women's stories for 50,000 years. And we've only had those stories, roughly speaking, for a few hundred years and barely that, and mainly through female authors who instantly changed literature. One night, Mary Shelley wrote a sentence like, it was a dark and stormy night, and Dr. Victor Frankenstein wanted to create life. In one sentence, she invents a brand new genre, the Gothic. So think of what's lost. And I'll finish by saying this. We know that only 1% of 1% of 1% of 1% of all art still exists, that that much art 99.999% of all Greek literature was lost. Now think and talk about women. 100% of it was lost because only 0.1% of Greek philosophy emerged. It changed the world. The Greeks woke up in 800 BC and were shocked at how advanced they were, that their gods lived in a changing world where the gods of Egypt and Mesopotamia, gods that existed for 5,000 years, never changed. Just think if we had had women's voices. I can't stand it. As a man that was raised only by men with five brothers, no mother, 
no aunts, no grandmothers. I was condemned to this terrible dungeon of male certitude and insecurity expressed the way even I'm expressing it now. And I mourn every day, not just the loss of the women in my personal life, but in a huge way, the loss of that. And I can't stand it. I mean, it's so interesting. I specialize in women artists really for the last 500 years. And just like you said, you know, we even have just 1% of 1% of 1% of artwork. It still exists. When you see, for example, Artemis Gentileschi's Susanna and the Eldest, this incredible work that she made age 17 in 1610. And we've seen countless depictions of Susanna. It's a story that recalls a young virtuous woman bathing in her garden when two lecherous men try and seduce her. And so oftentimes we see her as this sort of sexualized being because it allows for the semi-nude Susanna essentially for, for the male gaze. And what Artemisa Gentileschi does is she actually paints this work with anguish and tension and almost gives voice to what life must have been like in 17th century Rome. And to give women a voice and to say in this towering work that this is how we have been treated is just extraordinary. I feel seen even in the 17th century. It's wild that you say that. It is wildly true. We see something that we never saw anywhere else. Even if you hate the painting, we are seeing something that no other male showed, which was what Katie just said, the kind of awfulness of that. But there's something deeper I even see. This private moment we all have looking at ourselves when we're young going, wow, what's this? This is fat. This is beautiful. What are these? The moments of self-regard and self-knowledge are in there in a way they never were before in painting. Again and again this happens. All we're saying is open the damn door. Look at the Venice Biennale that's still up right now. I didn't get to see it, but I always wrote back in the early 90s, if, say, 51% of all shows were women artists, I don't think that art history would get much better or much worse. We would just see much more. Now everyone is complaining Oh, God, Jerry, we're letting in all these women, all these artists of color, disabled artists. You know, I'm an illegal Estonian immigrant, so I follow Estonian artists. And people will say, look at that, all these Estonian artists. It's all so mediocre, Jerry. And I go, yes, a lot of it is mediocre. But it's always been this way. If somebody like Sean Scully, and I will only punch up, can have a career by painting boring, fuzzy, blurry boxes <laughs> and stripes. And he can sell his work for $1.2 million. And I want all artists to make money, the good, the bad, and the very bad. And he can show in museums. If all these white male artists like that, mediocre artists, can have a career, the fuck is wrong with letting a mediocre women artist but I also think it's about what makes great artists. I mean, coming back to someone like Linda Nochlin's essay, Why Have There Been No Great Women Artists? And this idea, actually, what does greatness mean? And I kind of think, you know, to hell with that, because I think greatness is so part of everyone's individual opinion about something. So I might think something's great and you might disagree. And that's the kind of <laughs> great thing about it in the sense that <laughs> something can mean so much to me, but might be mediocre to you. 
That's so smart because a lot of us walk into the Sistine Chapel and might marvel at the floor or we might look at the tile work or you might be captivated by a tapestry below the Last Judgment. The fuck I know. The word greatness itself is to me a bullying term. It's a category that fucking means nothing. What's great for you might not be great for somebody else. There is consensus. If I look at Rembrandt sometimes and think, it's kind of brown. It's a little bit brown. But I do because of the consensus around the concept of greatness, around Aristotle or whatever. Or but it's, because what it's, it's what we've been led to believe is great. Anything led that I'm told is great, I will give a lot of consideration to. It took me a long time to understand Cezanne, Rembrandt. Constable, who's now one of my favorite artists, grew on me very slow. But I want to get into the women artists who you have sort of surrounded yourself with, sort of contemporaries of yours, because you only became an art critic in the early 1990s. I mean, interestingly, I was born in the early 1990s, so it's kind of a trajectory of my life as well. But you entered the New York art world in the 1990s. What had been happening before then? And what sort of art world did you enter into? That's a great question, Katie. So I was a long distance truck driver, desperate to be in the art world. I know that sounds needy, but I had been self-exiled and I knew how bad life was and how miserable I was. And I would do anything, staying up late every night. I called myself this art critic. I, to this day, see 25 to 30 shows a week, along with Roberta Smith, who I think is the best art critic, certainly alive now that my friend, the late Peter Sheldahl, has died. I think she's a true critic. I hope that she'll come on the show and talk real sense <gasps> into all of you, not I like do. mine. <laughs> so I was intimidated by the world. I would stay up late and watch. I couldn't stay up late enough to be part of the club scene. Those were the people giving their lives for art. Basquiat, Herring, all men mainly, the graffiti club art. I couldn't take that many drugs and I couldn't stay up late enough because I lived in a dive for no rent with no heat or water on Avenue B with drug dealers, dogs living in the hallway. And I was as happy as a clam, but I still couldn't stay up late enough and give my life for art. I ended up going much more for the painters, but the pictures artists were the most interesting and intimidated me the most. Why? Because... First of all, the talk they talked, I didn't understand. It was all that kind of talk in art form. But then I understood early that women picked up the tool that was most frowned upon, least valued, and most poo-pooed, which was the camera. The camera could not make art. It could only make documentary, which was great, great stuff during civil rights, women's rights, queer rights, women artists picked up this tool called the camera, completely ignored and created a new form of photography. That's Cindy Sherman, as you mentioned, Barbara Kruger, who, good or bad, 
and I'm a fan, is probably one of the most influential artists of the 20th century. You and I have clothes influenced by her, all graphics. Sarah Charlesworth, Louise Lawler, many of them are still in play. Why? Oh, because we like old women artists? Bullshit. It's because you've looked at Cindy Sherman five million times, and she's a shapeshifter. You still don't recognize her. She's still in there. Maybe it's boring. I used to tell her that. You do more shopping and putting on makeup of any artist who's ever lived, and yet you've plumbed waters from the deepest wells. How does that happen? I guess reggae is the answer again. We don't know where that comes from. So that was the art world I moved into. I was intimidated by pictures, but I knew right then that women who were coming from an outsider position, and I'm from Chicago, which is a perennial outsider position. Our great canon is the outsider artists who were never privileged. So anyway, that was the art world I came into. And in the 1990s, the whole world took the stage. And I was there staying up late with them. And British art was no longer relegated to British sculptors. You might hate the YBAs, but they de-islandized England for the rest of the world. Those Freeze kids, Tracy and Sarah, they built England into the world map and Germany and then the rest of the continents and everybody showed up and it was a fantastic cross scene. Still, of course, there were very few women and almost no artists of color. But I mean, it's so interesting because also I think in the 1990s, that's when everything shifted in terms of like the 1993 Whitney Biannual was this major moment and was argued to have paved the way for American art in the following decades. I mean, could you explain to the audience and me, what was the 1993 Whitney Biannual and what impact did it have? Really interesting that you asked that. I was there at the time, a really, really, really novice rookie art critic. I was just walking around seeing shows. One thing I knew right away, Katie, is that because everyone hated the show, mainly for being quote-unquote political, I knew, therefore, it must be good or it must not be as bad as other people thought. I don't know what to say about it. All I know is that I had a student at the time up at Risney named Carol Walker. And I remember in 1994 looking over at her work of black mammies, pickaninnies, slaves being whipped, beaten, having sex with a hundred other white like uh, crackers. And I remember looking at the student's work thinking, I will never speak to this artist because nothing I could say could equal this kind of sui generis genius. At the same time, I was talking to an artist, Shazia Sikander. I was talking to an ex-student named Julie Meritu. And I just thought, yeah, what the 1993 biennial simply signaled is what I caught on with in 1994, that the wheel was in spin, that nothing was going to hold this 
back anymore. And I didn't want to be part of a critical wall that held it back. So I'm not answering your question as much as I saw. I want to occupy a critical position instead of the one speaking to the many in the pyramidical critical structure that by the time the internet came along, I accidentally discovered a way to subvert that model of the one speaking to the many on my idiot Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, where the many could speak to one another. And let us all just talk together and work this goddamn thing out. And I loved it. I thought it was a great period of enormous change, not that much money, and then art and money started having sex in public in a way that I had never seen before in my entire life. And the answer to every question by around 2000 became get bigger, get shinier, grow more. Atriums were built all over the world that then had to be filled with a lot of crap. Museums that forgot to build usable space for art, like my beloved Garden of Modernism, the Museum of Modern Art, built a billion-dollar shiny museum. From the outside, it looks like a nice pharmaceutical company. I'm fine with that. But like most museums, they forgot to build usable space for art. And in the first five years, never showed more than 7% of women artists, Katie. I was the only one counting because a critic's job is to notice things and say what they notice. I walked around in 2004 when it opened and I went, something seems to be missing that I need And I walked around and all I did was count. And I did this every year for six years. But in those first years, MoMA made it up to the high percent of 7%. And in closing of this diatribe, you can't go back and rewrite the past. You can't invent female modernists where they didn't exist. However, They had enough work in the collection to have shown it, but they were still stuck with that word that Katie so brilliantly highlighted. Well, it wasn't great. Well, we don't know. It changes. Every generation changes. Look at me and Tracy. I did not know she was great in those salons. It took me much longer to understand that. Where am I going with this? I'm not sure, but it's all in play all the time. Museums are finally, finally, finally catching up. So is the market. And last to join, oddly enough, are my most beloved segment of all in the art world, the gallerists, who put their money where their taste is, their mom and pop operations. A tiny percent of them are billionaires like the mega galleries. I have never missed a show in the mega galleries. The Pace Gallery seems like the fire festival to me. It's so all (laughs) over the place. I don't know where I am when I'm there. Like I can't do anything properly, but I've never missed a show there. I find that game kind of boring. I'm not against anything. There are many scales. It's just that the art press pays 99.9% of attention to the 0.01% of the big artists. And I 
loathe this. I just think it's a world out of bounds. Just cover artists outside the top 10 booths, the top 10 prices, the top 10 hot young artists, the top 10 hotel lobbies. I don't care. There's 300 shows a week that we're ignoring. Yeah, no, it's so important. I think there's also definitely been a correlation between the rise of the internet and the kind of democratization of art as well, because more than ever, we are seeing artists from all different backgrounds, cultures, religions, races, sexualities, because suddenly people now have a place, I think, online to actually say what they want. And as a result, in a bit like this podcast, really, I just upload it. I email the guests and I and I put it online. We're in this kind of amazing moment now where we are hearing from all different people. In London, we've just opened this amazing show called Making Modernism, which is about the women German expressionists. And it's a revelation because people for the first time are saying, oh, wow, I didn't know there were artists working at this time. And what we can do now is we can sort of say to hell with the authoritarian establishments and say, no, these are the stories that deserve to be told, you know? And yes, finally, they are getting recognition at these big institutions and establishments. I couldn't agree more, Katie. I think your podcast is a perfect example. (laughs) Sorry, I don't want to make it all about me. (laughs) Even if it's crapola, here's what I think. If you follow media in the United States, every single one got every single thing wrong. And a few podcasts, idiots like you or me on my Instagram, (laughs) got it right. Okay, most collectors collect what other collectors like them have already collected, and then they sell them to other collectors like them who buy this kind of art. That's a lovely circle. I'm really happy for all of them making the big money. I don't have any problem with that. I think it creates a great smokescreen for people like you or even me to do all of our work. If your generation, Katie, wants to lock Matisse, Picasso, and whatever, Renoir in the basement, I'm fine with that. Just don't destroy it for a while. Maybe they'll bring it up in 500 years. But like Katie is saying, you are being tasked with the greatest job ever that's been presented to a generation. You're rewriting art history. It's happening in real time. I'm old. I won't live to see how you rehang museums, but you will. I'm old, and I can tell you that it all gets worked out over time. All this mediocre art that you all complain to about, oh my God, here's another figurative artist. Some of it is mediocre, and it'll get washed out. You will decide someday. But if I'm you, I accept the task. Start rewriting it. Voice your own opinion. Please, especially writers, say what you like, but what you don't like. Not everything has to be great. Being critical of art, like I say, is a way of showing art respect and each other. Yeah, totally. I think we have more opportunities than ever to kind of create our own platforms and say our opinion. I mean, even just the last few years... We've seen such a dramatic shift in terms of representation. I remember Micheline Thomas said this great quote a few years ago saying, you know, portraits are really powerful. They have great resonance in the world. The art world has changed dramatically, shifted dramatically in the last even just six to eight years. 
What is the impact of portraiture in the 21st century? I want to go back to Michelin first and then do portraiture. We have to understand that critics and curators especially are the weak link in a chain. Sometimes they excluded people like Michelin Thomas for a long time because her work did not look, say, as academic or theoretical. It was loud. It was garish. It was disruptive. It was big. It wasn't based on any idea. It was brash. And she was not in any of those documentas and Venices of that period, or even Whitney Biennials. Curators excluded that art that didn't fit their model of what the theoretical art should look like. Even that is finally cracking. What's the importance of portraiture? In the same way that I said that women moved in to an undervalued dead instrument, the camera, in the 80s, Artists of color in particular and women artists are moving into another dead genre, and that was portraiture. Long dead, devalued. Oh, yes, there was Alice Neal, by the way, the greatest painter of pregnancy in the history of our species. Definitely. And who was the greatest painter of white in the history of our species? Bert Morisot. So, the greatest painter of white, she should be a bookend as with the greatest painter of black in that century, Manet, but we never do that with women artists. It's too formal. Women artists in this century are telling narratives of lives never seen. They were discontinuous, disrupted narratives. Male narrative was always leaving home going on the road, committing murders, going to jail. Who kept all those billions of families together? Who never had the opportunity to leave home, to never act out, to hold the entire world together? Whose own lives were medically, psychologically, financially, spiritually and cosmically shattered and disrupted, but never could leave home, women, women artists of color, disabled women. And now we are seeing those portraits. Dolly Parton moved into a genre called country and Western. She writes the same three chords with the same time signature and writes Jolene. And suddenly we're at the brink of Artemisa Gentileschi's radical female vulnerability. Jolene, Jolene, please don't take him just because you can. I could never compete with you. I mean, same music, same everything, and a new universe. What changed in that signature to bring you and get uplift? Women artists and artists of color and other artists are moving into these skyscrapers that, of course, academia says the author is dead soon as women and artists of color showed up. Of course, academia said painting is dead soon as women painters showed up. Like Katie says, don't listen to them. They're only people that are listening to other people like them who've listened to other people like them who read translations of 80s French theory in English. 
So none of it is real. Pay attention to this dead genre, my loves. Not all of it's going to be good. 85% of the art made in the Renaissance was crap. (laughs) We just never see it. It's been filtered out. 80% of all art that you see in Mayfair or Chelsea is crap. But the 20% where we overlap and argue, that gets interesting on the one hand. So 80% of portraiture is going to be crap. 80% of my work is probably crap, but I don't realize it at the time. I don't intentionally make crap. So look at this boring genre, dead genre, completely dead portraiture, figurative painting, academic painting, really bad. And it's alive again, just like Mary Shelley, you idiots. Jerry Saltz, thank you so much for this incredible conversation. I mean, seriously, though, because it is about saying, actually, what do you want? You know, coming back to our first question and answer, what do you think is great? You know, who cares what people have told you? It's like, I didn't study any women artists at school or university. And then I had this epiphany and I was like, right, I'm going to go out and do it myself. I always think use whatever resources you have around and make something of yourself because chances are, if you believe in something, someone else will. I love that you're saying it. What you're saying is if you build it, they may come. Yeah, they will. But Jerry, as this is the Great Women Artists podcast, we do always ask our guests if there was a woman artist now or from history who you'd most like to meet, who would it be and what would you say to her? God, that's kind of so breathtaking to me as somebody raised without a mother, okay? And that to me is my normal, if you know my story. It's just my normal, the same way all of us are partly formed by our traumas and that's your normal. It moves me so much to even think that, that I don't know. I would want to go into the American South and see all the women of color who had to stay home and made something that no longer exists, that was lost. Drawings, paintings, tapestries, anything. I would want to surround myself and say, What was this lost Greek poetry that the world will never know? So I'm a loser. Why don't you kill me? So there you are. (laughs) Thank you, Great Women Artists Podcast. Thank you so much, Jerry Saltz, for coming on the podcast today. Thank you all so much for listening to this episode of the Great Women Artists Podcast with the brilliant Jerry Salt. I am just in awe of his take on criticism, but also insights into the likes of Gillian Waring, Cara Walker, and Tracy Emin. As always, I have linked to everything in the show notes. This episode was sound edited by the brilliant Nardis Minelage and research assistant was Viva Ruji. And if you have been enjoying these episodes, please do rate and review as it helps others find us. And we'll see you next week for a very special 100th episode of the Great Women Artists Podcast with me, Katie Hessel.